If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Charles Burgoyne. He is the founder and CEO of Valkyrie Intelligence, a consulting firm with domain expertise in applied science and strategy. He's also a general partner for Valkyrie Signals, an AI-driven hedge fund based in Austin, as well as a managing partner for Valkyrie Labs, an AI product company. Charlie holds a master's degree in theoretical physics from Georgetown University, and a bachelor's in nuclear physics from George Washington University. I had the occasion to meet Charlie when we shared a stage, when we were talking about AI, and about 30 seconds into my conversation with him, I said, we've got to get this guy on the show. And so I think, uh, strap in, it should be a fun episode. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thanks so much, Brian, for having me. Excited to talk to you today. You know, let's start with, uh, maybe reenact a little bit of our conversation when we first met. Tell me how you think of artificial intelligence. Like, what what is it? I mean, like, what is artificial and about it, and what is intelligent about it? Uh, sure. So, I, I the further I get down in this field, I start thinking about AI um, with two different definitions. It's a servant with two masters. It has its private sector um, applied narrow band applications where AI is really all about understanding patterns that we perform uh, and that we capitalize on every day and automating those. Uh, Things like uh, approving time cards and uh, making uh, selections within a retail environment. Um, And that's that's really where the the real value of AI is right now in the market. And there are a lot of people in that space who who are developing really cool algorithms that capitalize on the potential patterns that exist and, and largely lay dormant in data. Um, so in, that's, in, in that definition, intelligence is, is really about, uh, is, is really the, uh, the cycles that we use within a cognitive capability um, to instrument our life. And it's artificial in that we don't need an organic brain to do it. Um, now, the AI that I'm obsessed with from a research standpoint, uh, a lot of academics are, and I know you are as well, Byron, um, th- that AI definition is actually much more around the nature of intelligence itself. Um, because in order to artificially create something, we must first understand it in its uh, primitive state, in its, in its unadulterated state. Um, and I think that's where the bulk of the really fascinating research in this domain is going, is, is just understanding what intelligence is in and of itself. Um, now I'll come kind of straight to the interesting turn of this conversation, which is I've had not quite a hundred guests on the show and I can count on one hand, the number who think it may not be possible to build a general intelligence. Um, you're according to our conversation, you aren't convinced that we can do it. it. Is that true? And if so, why? Yes, uh, I'm, I am, uh, the, the short answer is I am not convinced we can create a generalized intelligence. 
Um, and that's, that's become more and more solidified the deeper and deeper I go into research and, and familiarity with the field. Um, if you really unpack intelligent decision-making, it's actually much more complicated than a simple collection of gates, a uh, simple collection of uh, empirically driven singular decisions, right? Uh, a lot of the, neuro, the, the neural network scientists would have us believe that all decisions are really a, the right permutation of weighted uh, neurons uh, interacting with other layers of, of weighted neurons. And from what I've been able to tell so far with our research, either, either that, is, uh, that is not getting us towards the goal of creating a truly intelligent uh, entity, uh, or it's, it's doing the best within the confines of the mechanics we have at our disposal now. In other words, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether or not the lack of progress towards a true generalized intelligence is due to the fact that A, the digital environment that we have tried to create said uh, artificial intelligence is unamenable to that objective, or B, the nuances that are inherent to intelligence um, are, I'm not positive yet, those are things through which we have an understanding of modeling, nor would we ever be able to create a way of modeling that. I'll give you a quick example. Um, if, we, if we think of any science fiction movie that, that uh, um, encapsulates the, the nature of what AI will eventually be, right? Whether it's her or Ex Machina uh, or Skynet or uh, <clears throat> you name it, uh, there are a couple of big leaps that get glossed over uh, in all science fiction literature and film. Uh, and those leaps are really around things like motivation. What motivates an AI like, uh, what truly at its core motivates an AI like the one in Ex Machina to leave her creator uh, and to enter into the, to the world and explore? What, what about uh, what about that intelligence is, how is that intelligence derived from innate creativity? Um, how are they, how are they designing things? How are they thinking about drawings? How are they, how are they, uh, identifying clothing that they need to put on, right? All these different nuances that are intelligently derived from that behavior. We really don't have a good understanding of that. Um, and we're not really making progress towards an understanding of that because we've been distracted for the last 20 years with, with, research in fields of computer science that aren't aren't really that closely related <laughs> to understanding those core drivers. So when you say a sentence like, I don't know if we'll ever be able to make a general intelligence, ever is a long time. So do you mean that literally? Like, tell me a scenario in which it is literally impossible. Like it can't be done, even if like you came across a genie that could grant your wish it just can't be done like maybe time travel you know in the back in time it just may not be possible do you mean that kind of may not be possible or or do you just mean on a time horizon that is meaningful to humans um so i <laughs> it's on the spectrum between the two but i think it leans closer towards not ever possible under any condition um, I was at a conference recently, and I made this claim, which admittedly 
uh, as any claim in this with this particular question would be, uh, is based off of intuition and experience, which are totally fungible <laughs> assets. Uh, but I made this claim that I didn't think it was ever possible. And somebody in the audience um, asked me, well, have you considered meditating um, to, to create a synthetic AI? And the, the audience laughed and, I, and I, I, I stopped them. I said, you know, that's actually not the worst idea <laughs> that I've been exposed to, right? That's not the worst potential solution for understanding intelligence um, to try and reverse engineer my own brain with as little distractions from its inner working mechanics as possible. Um, that may very easily be an incredible aid to understand how the brain works. Um, I think it's actually, if we think about, uh, if we think about gravity, um, gravity is not a bad analog, right? Gravity is this force that everybody and their mother who's, who's older than, you know, who's past fifth grade kind of understands how it works, right? You drop an apple, you know which direction it's going to go. Um, not only that, but if you get, as you get experienced, you kind of have a prediction of how fast it will fall, right? If you were to see a simulation where you drop an apple and it takes 12 seconds to hit the ground, you'd know that that was wrong, even if the rest of the vector was correct. The scalar is off a little bit, right? Um, but the reality is, is that we can't create uh, an artificial gravity environment, right? We can create forces that simulate gravity, right? Centripetal, uh, centripetal force is not a, or centrifugal force rather, is not a bad way of uh, replicating gravity. Um, but we don't actually know enough about the underlying mechanics that guide gravity, such that we could create an artificial gravity uh, using the same techniques, the same, relatively the same mechanics that are used in organic gravity. In fact, it was only a year and a half ago or so, um, well, closer to two years now, where the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to the individuals who identified that it was gravitational waves that permeate gravity. It actually has nothing to do with gravitrons, putting to, putting to rest an argument that had been going on since, um, since Einstein, tru truly. Uh, so I guess my, my, my point is, is that we haven't really made progress in understanding the underlying mechanics and every, and every step we've taken um, has proven to be extremely valuable in the industrial sector, but actually given, uh, opened up more and more unknowns uh, in the actual inner workings of intelligence. Um, and if I had to bet today, not only is the time horizon on a true uh, artificial intelligence extremely long-tailed, um, uh, but I actually think that it's, it's not impossible that it's completely impossible altogether. So you know the, the argument, the counter to that, that virtually everyone on my show would, would offer, and it, it goes like this. Um, you're biological, and biology is just kind of chemistry in motion, and chemistry is just physics, and therefore everything that happens in you is just physics. It's, you're, and you can, you can get with a big enough whiteboard, I can, I can write out everything that's special about Charlie Burgoyne. Um, and if, if it's just physics, then there's no reason we can't replicate that. Um, what's wrong with that logic? Um, sure. So I would, I would argue that uh, as opposed to, let's, let's start with a very simple example of just using physics to try and create something synthetic. Uh, how about a, how about a diamond, right? We're able to create a synthetic diamond uh, in a very short amount of time by compressing carbon, 
right, until it solidifies until a single a singular lattice molecule becomes a perfect perfect diamond. That's just physics, right? But it took us an incredible amount of time to understand that, and we were able to we were able to show that one particular molecule, one particular atom uh, of uh, of carbon. Well, sorry, one particular uh, isotope of carbon. Um, with one, with two particular features of a process, so heat and pressure, would create the the, the object of interest. And it, I mean, there are certainly more components to that. It's not that simple, but that, that's basically how it works. Um, we the to to the intelligence that we experience and exhibit as a as a cognitive sentient being um, is derived not from a a small collection of experiences. Uh, a small processes in our own uh, cortex, but from the combination of that with all the other cortexes that we experience in a day-to-day life, all the other domains that we interact with regularly, um, we're getting trillions of different inputs uh, throughout the course of a day. Um, we're getting, uh, we're making millions of decisions, extremely small, minute decisions, but decisions nonetheless that 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 are based off of input. Um, the, the complexity of the network, which defines intelligence and particularly our own intelligence, is extremely vast. So it's it's a it's a, it, it's just a gigantic problem. Um, and even if we were to accomplish that, there's still an underlying challenge, which is how do we uh, how do we account for the deep-seated motivations that are either instinctual or derived from experiences that we've had, uh, how do we derive that motivation and simulate that for an AI? Um, so let's say we, we, we have a, we, we, we beget a, a, a baby in a laboratory. We put them in this laboratory nursery, right? And they don't have any contact with the outside world. Um, and then we have a second room that's configured in a very similar way. And we're only exposing uh, that we understand the basic needs of that baby at very, very early age. We understand how the neurons are, are building, growing, developing um, at a high level. Um, and we create a network. Let's say we have all the compute power in the world. We create a, a network and we give them uh, some of the same requirements that we know the baby maintains. And we let the two grow uh, in parallel uh, development paths. Um, on the, you know, on the 2000th day of life, we let the baby out of the room and robots have taught it how to walk and robots have taught it how to talk and interact, uh, for us to make the relatively naive assumption that the, the robot or sorry, the, the AI and the baby would be saying the same things or have similar motivations or even articulate themselves and articulate problems in the same way, um, is, it's it's neophytical. It, it, it's it's a it's a claim of a neophyte, right? <laughs> um, there there are no there are no ways that we currently we don't have currently the vernacular, the understanding, the expertise to articulate the core motivators for the expressions and behaviors that we exhibit and try and understand on a regular basis. We we see how people behave. We can even make predictions about how they'll behave in the future under certain domain requirements and certain conditions. We're wrong about that a lot, um, but we don't really understand at the deepest, most fundamental level why those decisions are happening. Is it the superposition of different physical phenomenon and domains on top of each other? It's possible, sure. 
everything's bound by the constraints of the physical world. That doesn't necessarily mean that's completely explainable. So then people, well, before I say that, so to be clear, you know, it's legitimate for people to say, I, you know, I think I have a soul or I think there's some non-corporeal part of me that isn't governed by the physical universe. I mean, most people actually believe that, but you're not, you're not talking about that when you're expressing this view that AGI could potentially be impossible. I, I don't depend on it, but I, I would be dishonest if I said that that is often the um, conclusion I reach when I really think about this problem. Okay, so a lot of people hearing that argument before this last little bit would say, you're talking uniquely about human intelligence, and we are a big, we are a big bucket of spaghetti code that, uh, who knows, you know, how we happen to be intelligent. But is it possible that intelligence is a much, there are simpler manifestations of it that we may just stumble across someday that aren't nearly as complicated as human intelligence. We may get to it uh, without a lot of the excess baggage we, we have. Uh, so, you, so there are a number of initiatives. I, I'm not sure. I, I think we got a chance to talk about this. Um, individuals have tried to, to replicate the, the neural co cortex of like earthworms, right? Uh, the nematode worm. Yes, yeah. 302 right. neurons, yeah. Yeah, and, and to date, that experiment has not proven to be very fruitful, right? They, among them, they don't even agree that it's possible. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the people working on it are trying to replicate 302 neurons in a machine to, to duplicate the behavior of this a certain worm. And so a, a, a Luddite... <laughs> Or, or I guess a, a contrarian would would point out that we have an algorithm right now that can we have algorithms right now that can predict what you'd like to buy at on Amazon, uh, or can predict that you would like to uh, change the temperature of your home with a Nest. Um, it must be it must be then that there are uh, but the challenges that, that are faced with the with the worm team <laughs> are due to the fact that the worm team is not very competent, right? Because surely that decision process that we go through to identify that the home needs to be warmer is far more complex than, than a simple uh, a simple question you could pose to an earthworm or to to, to right to an earthworm. I, I don't think that 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 logic is sound. I think what gets conflated a lot, particularly by um, by the, the Luddites or those who, who have a relatively pedantic or topical understanding of, of intelligence is that by understanding, by making predictions about what will appear next or occur next uh, in, a, in a pseudo intelligent manner that we have an understanding of the underlying mechanics of intelligence. Uh, and those two couldn't be, not only does, is that not the case, but those two are diametrically opposed when it comes to uh, research and development. Um, the former has gotten so much attention in industry and has been so valuable, so wildly valuable, um, that most people don't care. Right? Most people don't care that we don't understand much more about the true nature of intelligence today than we did 40 years ago. They don't really care about that. 
um, they only care about the fact that we're cutting default rates by a significant margin, or they only care about the fact that they can optimize inventory by creating recommendation engines. Uh, but the, again, the deeper I go, I, I actually don't think you can reconcile those two domains well. And I think we'll eventually get to the point where we, we actually rename uh, one of those fields um, from the nature of, you know, the, the nature of ontologies, nature of structures, uh, the, the correspondence to semantic objects and synaptic firings. We'll, we'll name that something, and we'll know that that has nothing to do with the operations that are occurring on Siri or Alexa or, or Google Home. So, put another way, you're saying that narrow AI and AGI may have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, and even narrow AI and understanding how the nematode worm works may have nothing to do with each other. Precisely. So, on this question of general AI, you know, there's all this money that comes into artificial intelligence and 99% of it's going to what you were just talking about. How do I identify spam email or how do I auto guess what email reply I want to send next or, in, you know, any of that. Who's working on general intelligence as far as you know? Uh, well, well, those who don't uh, need a meal ticket, <laughs> basically. Right, right. Yeah, it's just, it's not a... Um, you know, it's not too dissimilar from, you know, deep astrophysics or, uh, I guess CERN's a bad example nowadays because they're showing quite a bit of value, but, you know, uh, minute particle physics work is not particularly valuable um, to industry, but, but it's pursued because it's loved. So, you know, of course, academics, some academics fall into that category. I've seen some interesting work come out of neuroscience departments. Um, um, and I, I, I definitely think that there are some computer scientists who think about this challenge, uh, but it's quite an open wild west. Um, I, but I, I mean, if you just had to start listing them, the Human Brain Project in Europe presumably is working on general intelligence because they're trying to model the human brain. Yeah, right. You assume that Google works on it with DeepMind. DeepMind. Yeah. Um, you assume that, you know, I don't know, Carnegie Mellon or... Uh, or MIT, or are there people there working on it? But can you think of, like, if you were to guess, are there a dozen teams working on it, a hundred teams working on it? Uh, oh. Yeah, so, okay, so the, as, as we're defining it, I bet you there are less than a hundred bona fide teams working on that problem. The challenge I have, though, is I think if I went to spend time with one of those universities, Probably not Carnegie Mellon, but uh, well, maybe Carnegie. Let's say let's say we went and spend the afternoon uh, with MIT or with Berkeley. He said we'd like to talk to your general intelligence team. Uh, I bet you nine times out of ten, when we talk to those labs, the first thing they would do would be to pull up uh, a system of of code uh, or a collection of algorithms that they've programmatically developed that they would argue are contributing towards the research in generalized intelligence. If we were to walk into one of those rooms and they don't actually have any computers out at all, but a collection of whiteboards that show, a, you know, that show the bridging between semantic objects and decisions uh, outside of the confines of the, uh, of the digital universe, uh, I would actually have a lot of interest in <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, and we, have to, we should say open AI, by the way. I mean, they explicitly uh, are interested in it. 
Um, so let me give you the argument from genetics. So, you know, you, you have DNA and the DNA tells how to build you and how to run you. Mm-hmm. And it's something like 600 mag uh, expressed the way that, you know, it's, it's however many base pairs, it can be one of four things. And, um, and then you say, well, what part of that is different than say a banana? And, you know, you're down to like half. And because we know the banana is not intelligent. Then you say, well, what part's different than me and, uh, you know, a cockroach? And then it's a much smaller amount. And then you, you even say, what part's different from me and a chimp? And you're probably down to 1%. And there is a marked difference in a human intelligence and chimpanzee intelligence. Like it's, you know. Um, and so if you're at 1%, you're at 6 meg. So somehow 6 meg of code is all biology needs to produce intelligence. So why isn't that a proof that not only can it be done, but uh, it's actually, you know, a pretty short program. Very interesting provocation. And full disclosure to podcast listeners, we have not discussed this before. So <laughs> this, is all, uh, this is all off the cuff. Well, let's take, let's take my supposition, right, that I made earlier, that if we, if we accept the supposition that intelligence is not, the mechanics of intelligence are derived from odd things that we don't understand, such as motivation, uh, and instinct, uh, creativity, things that uh, are often given in theoral nature, but I, but I don't think we depend on that in order for the sake of argument. Let's say that we take those suppositions, that at the core of intelligence is m- intrinsic motivation for the organic life. I'm actually not sure that that's, the, that that's encoded in those six makes. I think a banana has motivations, right? A banana has, is motivated to avoid uh, getting eaten by um, prey. It's, it, it avoids falling before it's the right level, before it's ripe. Okay. Maybe a banana is not a great example, but a chimpanzee or, or my beagle named plutonium, um, they both have motivators, core motivators that they operate against uh, with all the, their f- facilities, right? Um, they, they are capable of making decisions. They're capable of, you know, emotional intelligence is, is impressive given that they're not human, but it's, it's certainly not the human level. Um, I'm not positive, to be honest, Byron, I'm not positive that the thing, the intrinsic capabilities, uh, intrinsic features of our genome that guide and dictate the impressive nature of intelligence uh, are, are unique to humans. It may simply be the capacity for which we, we have, um, the capacity that we have at our disposal to execute against those motivations. And, and frankly, the, the level of complexity that we can indulge ourselves with uh, when it comes to solving those challenges. So let's switch to consciousness for a moment. And yes. just to define our terms here, consciousness is um, the experience of being you. It is the fact that you can feel warmth and a computer can measure temperature. And it's the difference between those two things. A computer yes. can measure it. You can experience it. Mm-hmm. What do you? Th- where do you think it comes from? How would you? How would you? As a, you know, I mean, look, you've got a degree in theoretical physics and a degree in nuclear physics. How would you, as a physicist, 
think of consciousness scientifically, or can you even think of it scientifically? Yeah. So I let's see where to where to dig in on this. Um, I think the 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 real question for how do we differentiate between feeling warmth and identifying a temperature uh, comes from which systems which systems can we can we affect with that sensory input and if consciousness is about us experiencing something versus understanding a variable has changed its uh, value uh, is that because we have more is that because we simply have more systems that are tied back to that sensor in other words a computer that has a thermometer attached to it via usb um, well it can't really feel because it doesn't necessarily well this is the question it doesn't necessarily have uh, a, a large number of systems that are dependent on that particular sensor um, and here's, here's why this may be the case. There are plenty of phenomenon that uh, experience dramatic changes throughout the course of our day in our environments that we don't experience it's at all. We could actually, we can identify that there's been a change, but we don't actually experience them. In other words, we don't use cycles of consciousness to appreciate that change. Um, there are some that sit out of our sensory capability, like uh, changes in ultraviolet light in our environment. Um, there are subtle changes in our optical uh, models for, for what's going on in the world around us, right? There's a, there's a clock in, in the lab that I can see from my desk, let's say, and I know the second hand is changing, but I don't, I don't experience that change. I sense it, but I don't actually need to experience it because that I've, I've eliminated the need to know that it's been a second since the previous, the previous second. Um, a previous instance. So is it that we haven't, if we have, have we not created enough dependent systems on sensors so that a, so that the computer can synthesize uh, or artificially create an experience? It's possible. Um, temperature is a good example, actually, because we have a, a deep learning computer in the lab uh, that when the, that has temperature sensors and when it identifies the temperature has gone too high, it actually changes a whole bunch of features in the systems. Does, does that mean now that it's experiencing heat um, because it has a dependence on, it has a collection of systems that are dependent on that change? Um, well, presumably to experience something that has to have itself. And, but it sounds like you're much more open to machine consciousness over machine intelligence. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a fair thing to, to state. I think that it is. Uh, it's much more difficult for me to imagine a scenario where we lose, uh, where a computer is is experiencing genuine creativity, genuine discovery, genuine exploration. Then, um, then it is a leap for me to say that a computer that is aware of its temperature and its environment and adapts to that, reacts to that, turns systems on and off because of that, uh, is quasi-conscious. Because, because there was a guy named Weizenbaum in the 60s who made a program called Eliza, which was kind of a really primitive chatbot. And he saw people pouring their heart out to it, and he kind of turned on it. 
and, and didn't want to do it anymore. And he said that when a computer says, I understand, that it's just a lie. There's nothing that, there's no I there. The computer doesn't have an I. And there's nothing that understands anything. Um, mm-hmm. But it feels like you might say, if the computer says, I hurt, that can't be dismissed out of hand. Precisely. When we say, I understand what you're going through and I empathize, is that really is that, really that far away from saying, I am hurting and, I'm, and, and I am making sure that I stay in a stable position by changing, uh, by changing the speed of my fan? Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, that to me is like the compass saying, I want to point north. I don't think there's an eye in there that wants to point north. Um, but I guess we wouldn't know, would we? Well, so you, so you use a very interesting word there. You said, I want to point north. And I think want... Again, it, it strikes on the motivator. Those motivators are core to the definite, to, core to the nature of intelligence. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily. I don't think it's intelligent at all. Really, I mean, it's not. It's really not that intelligent for a computer to say, "I'm warm," and then to turn on um, a, an additional fan. Um, but it's, it's, it's not. It, we're def, we've defined at some point the motivator for it. There is a, so it's not actually experiencing any motivation. It's not doing anything intelligent. It's simply reacting under the conditions that we defined as important to it. Um, so it has a sense of self, but it's all determined. Its sense of self is completely derived from the parameters that we've defined for it. Uh, and maybe that's the delta, is that a human is conscious. A human's consciousness is capable of expanding into new domains. So you buy a new uh, video game or you uh, you you learn how to uh, say you learn how to play uh, soccer you say I, I have a new sense of, I do have a new sense of identity and that I'm a I'm a goalie I'm a really effective goalie and that's that's an element of your identity that was not create that was not derived from uh, from a higher intelligence that was derived from circumstances through which you understood your core motivators and intelligently readapted your model of your own consciousness. So are you familiar with emergence? No. Okay. So emergence is a property by which a, um, a collection of things takes on properties that none of the components have. So uh, you, for instance, uh, have a sense of humor, but there's no cell in you that has a sense of humor. Sure. Emergent intelligence, uh, things like uh, beehive. The beehive collectively demonstrates more intelligence than any bee. An anthill is much more intelligent than any ant and all of the rest. So do you feel like consciousness or intelligence or creativity or any of these things we grapple with are in some way these and so emergence is a poorly understood concept. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we have a word for it, and, and there, there are kind of two flavors of it. One of them is what's known as weak emergence, where uh, you could study oxygen and hydrogen for a year and never imagine that if you put them together, they make water and it's wet. Uh, but once it happens, you can figure it out. Oh, I see. 
But then there's a highly controversial notion of strong emergence, which says you can't actually derive the conclusion. You can't work backwards. You can't, consciousness is an emergent phenomenon, but you can study it forever and you'll never find out what its components are. Would you buy that as being a possibility? Um, I would actually, I would. Um, I, I do think, so this is, and this is again, where we get into a mess with the two definitions of AI. Uh, on the one side, um, I am completely dependent on the fact that systems are more deterministic than we think they are. And that properties of macro systems are derived from nuances in microsystems. Um, that's that's the nature of my work. That's how I feed my family is <laughs> identifying those things. Um, but I don't think that it's actually. So I do believe I do believe in weak emergence, uh, if you will, which is is roughly analogous to to the work that we do in some ways. Um, but I do believe that there are systems that uh, are so dependent on the nature of which they are combined um, that reverse engineering them once they exist in their final state is, is pretty untenable. Um, in other words, I think that the dependence on the conditions through which objects are brought together and related to one another uh, and the time frame through which, particularly time as a dimension of measuring how those are brought together, um, have a much bigger impact on uh, on their final state than I think we than, than I think we'd like to believe based on you know based on the determinist nature of things that we see more and more. So I don't I think it's entirely possible we couldn't reverse engineer certain things because the conditionality under which those objects merged. Um, to create this strong emergence uh, is is ununderstandable. So you're a collection of trillions of cells, none of which you know that you exist, mm -hmm. and you're an entity that is a part of any one of them, right? Like you could lose any cell and not be diminished, not be any less you. Do you think it's possible there, for instance, there are, uh, do you think plants might be conscious in that way? Uh, yes, I think, I think if we define consciousness as an understanding of the implications to your own entity based off of exterior conditions or even interior conditions, I think that is something that plants experience. What about there's the Gaia hypothesis that says that all living things on the earth are in a way analogous to cells of a body and the earth itself has a kind of a consciousness or an intelligence that just like your cells can't perceive you, you can't perceive it, but it, it's as real as you are. Is that possible at least? I, I would find it very unlikely. Um, and I, I'd say that only because my sense of self, my sense of identity is not dependent on the number of fingernail cells I have, but is extremely dependent. We, we don't know how, and we don't know if we can replicate it, but we know that it has a lot to do with the cells that exist between my two ears <laughs> and between the back of my head and my eyeballs. We know that that area is dependent for all that I understand to be, my, to be me. Um, and that there are specific features of 
uh, neurons and synapses uh, and all the different waves and ebbs and, con and contractions of my, cor of my cerebral cortex that contribute to my very well-defined self, uh, very well-defined sense of self. Um, if you look at the, if you look at the planet, um, interlaced connective, uh, connective cells, if you will, or analogs to cells, um, there, the earth is really not constructed in such a way. Well, let me, let me make the argument. <clears throat> it goes like this. It says, you know, your body keeps, it regulates a temperature and, and nobody really knows how it does that, by the way, you know, you're 98, six and if you have a fever, it goes up or whatever, but it, it does. Uh, it maintains its temperature. And the earth, interestingly, maintains a set of conditions which are hospitable to life. The salinity of the oceans doesn't change over time, even though you would think that they would, like more salts constantly going into them. The mm -hmm. level of oxygen in the atmosphere is maintained. But what happens when, when the earth gets too hot? Um, certain processes happen that cool it down. And when it gets too cool, certain processes happen that heat it up. And somehow the climate of the earth is self-regulating in the way that your body is self-regulating through this, all of these complex systems. Um, the climate is largely the same as it has been on this planet for hundreds of millions of years. And, and so it, it seems to, it seems to react to its environment in a way that I'm sitting here thinking, well, if you think your computer reacting to a temperature change and therefore you're comfortable saying the computer's hot, it would almost seem like you're comfortable saying the earth says it's hot or the earth says it's cold or the earth says its oceans are too salty and that it's going to make them less salty, that it experiences it all. And, and I guess I'm just trying to find out where that ends with you. Sure. So it certainly ends before there. <laughs> so uh, let's, let, let's see. Uh, to, to speak plainly, the, the fact that two systems are robust does not mean that they derived that robust nature from the same mechanism or the same process. So I'm self-regulating my temperature. Sure, that's a complex process we don't understand. Assume, again, it has something to do with um, my gray matter uh, making that decision for us. Um, could, could be something else, but it's not. Um, the, me the mechanisms that got that allowed me to get to the point where I've evolved uh, as a species to autonomously make those decisions and change um, is different. I'm thinking about the process holistically, right? Uh, and that's, that's not quite the same as having a collection of uh, un unattached organisms or, or disparate organisms that will react to those macro conditions. Uh, so algae growing in the southern hemisphere because the temp the level of CO2 is rising and the temperature is rising, which then offsets those things. Is that because there is a universal balance that's derived from Earth? Or is it because the algae have only the algae that are capable of doing that have been able to survive over the course of multiple, multiple millennia? In other words, I think the Earth is identifying objects and selecting objects, uh, not consciously, of course, but... Uh, is created an environment where objects that are symbiotic in their nature will survive well, and those that don't won't. Um, so that defines the frame, it defines the ecosystem, and 
and it has a very you know, extremely draconian method of of letting those that are uh, letting those that that don't agree with its ecosystem out uh, despite complete annihilation. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the process by which I regulate my temperature is derived from uh, is derived from individual cells or regions of cells making decisions based off of their temperature uh, simply because that's the environment that they've been exposed to uh, and, and they've been introduced to. Fair enough. Well, we're, we're, we've, we've spent a whole lot of time talking on these and I thank you for your patience going through all these issues. Tell no. me a bit about Valkyrie intelligence and how do you spend your days? You're, you're a practitioner in all of these fields. So tell us about your company and what you try to do and sure. Yep. Yeah, so Valkyrie Intelligence uh, was founded about a, a year and a half ago, almost two years now, actually. Um, and we, we basically are a collection of scientists, uh, mathematicians, and strategists who solve really interesting problems in the industrial world using narrow AI. Uh, we say narrow AI, but we, we also implement uh, techniques in traditional machine learning uh, a lot. Uh, and we also implement techniques in basic algorithm development. Um, we champion two different disciplines in the field. One is uh, pattern recognition, which of course gets a lot of attention in industry um, from neural network design to algorithmic design. Um, but what we really champion uh, is the second discipline, which is structuring knowledge. So taking data and information and restructuring it into such a format that it's amenable to pattern recognition. And we've done some really cool stuff. I mean, we've, we've helped banks cut their default rates in half uh, we've helped uh, telecommunication companies uh, redesign their whole business model, helped investment firms make predictions about what assets to buy. Uh, we've created recommendation engines in retail. Um, and our, our the multiplier on projects with us is, is very impressive. Um, we've got a lot to be grateful for. I think we've had a, a, a stellar run so far. Um, I myself am straddling the player coach um, model where I, I serve as CEO um, but I also am hands-on code uh, for a significant amount of time. Um, so I'm, I take on some of, our, um, some of our projects that pertain to graph theory, the implementation of complex graphs within uh, industrial space. I, I take on some of our challenges uh, around um, uh, clustering analysis in those graphs. So we, we're developing techniques with techn uh, methods like the Louvain algorithm um, to, to list one. Um, we also do, I do a lot of work on the sequential model and stochastic math. It's really important for some of our financial services clients. clients. Um, and uh, so, that, yeah, so my day is, my day is pretty, pretty, pretty big mix. Um, traditional leadership roles, and then again, two, two days or so, I target a week uh, hands-on keyboard. Um, the entire Valkyrie team dedicates about 10% to 20% of our time on R&D. Uh, so we have what's called Sci-Fry, where Friday afternoons and sometimes Friday evenings and sometimes Friday nights, uh, we are working on really interesting problems um, that we're we're obsessed with. Um, so for me, it's largely in semantic graph modeling um, and developing, you know, those whiteboards that we described um, <laughs> uh, earlier in the, the conversation. Um, some of my team is is really keen on developing new techniques for in-memory data frames. Um, and uh, we've 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 just found a really great mix between uh, valuable work for clients and then academic research. Um, so, 
the valuable work for clients. Are there any kind of success stories you can tell that a problem was brought to you and you worked on it, you got a solution and all the rest? Absolutely. Uh, so we worked with a uh, investment firm um, that was interested in creating a model for making predictions about the value of a particular asset. Uh, we created a prediction algorithm for their asset class uh, and they were able to raise uh, $150 million for that one collection of algorithms and that technique alone. Very successful fund um, from that point on. Um, we developed a recommendation engine for a, a digital experience company. Basically, you think of it as like Fitbit for your mental health. And um, they've now installed in over 70 Fortune 500 companies, uh, grown incredibly over the last three years since we started working with them. Uh, and they're just a phenomenal company. Energy, E-N-E-R-G-I dot life is the name of that client. Uh, we worked with the bank that was dealing with really high default rates and helped them cut that in half um, through our knowledge engineering techniques. Got from 16.3% down to 8.4% uh, and um, helped their team create a data science uh, capability internally. Uh, I think what sets us apart is that we're much more focused on the business output than we are on which technique we use. We don't care if we need to use traditional ML or the latest, greatest convolutional neural net to get to a solution. We continue to have really great project work um, that's derived solely from our capability. Uh, and that's why we're able to be completely self-funded. So we are, we're not even bootstrapped at this point. We're a profitable company. Um, no debt, no, we have, haven't had to raise any money from any investors. Uh, it's all been derived from doing really high quality high quality work for our clients. And so what would be a typical client? Like if somebody's listening and says, I have a project, uh, is that the kind of person that should contact you? Uh, we, we love when clients have projects. We tackle those. Our absolute favorites uh, are clients who say, I know AI and ML has a potential impact on my company. I just don't know where to start. I'm not sure if I have the right data. I'm not sure if I have um, the right team. Um, I, I really need to figure out how to make this new transformative technology work for my business. Uh, and, if, and when we engage like that, our, we, we bring on our strategy team and our science team, uh, and we're able to create a totally different vision uh, um, for, their, for execution that's much more aligned in where they envision their business going. Uh, and we execute code um, without question. We're not a front-end design shop. We, we don't put a bunch of frills around our work. We develop algorithms. So when we leave our client meetings, they have a collection of algorithms and 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 work, not a, a, a pretty PDF uh, and something that's topical. Uh, so, yeah, we 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 love clients who who want to understand how their business can transform because every business is different. Uh, we don't have a singular platform. We're platform agnostic. Another big benefit. Uh, and we like to go in, understand the problem, and then transform it in a unique way that gives them an advantage. And we've had really great results with that so far. Well, we're running out of time here. When pe if people want to follow you personally, how do they do that? Yeah, just uh, you can follow me at Twitter at uh, at Charlie Burgoyne. I'm actually much more active on LinkedIn um, and uh, at Valkyrie Intel. Uh, v a l k y r i e i n t e l uh, is our is our Twitter handle as well. Um, and if you want to reach out to me, feel feel free to send a, a message to uh, uh, inquiries at Valkyrie.ai. Love to talk. 
All right, Charlie. Well, it's been a lot of fun. This is my one of my very favorite topics on the planet, and, and uh, you're a really thoughtful guy. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for pushing the boundaries of our understanding. It's uh, I've got a lot to chew on this weekend. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.